Hey guys, welcome back to this week's podcast. We hope this week's message inspires you and encourages you. Be sure to check out our website to find out more about us. Here's today's message. Well, amen. We know, church family, that we will never, ever be alone. And how wonderful was it hearing those testimonies, those stories of God at work through the life of Ibby and Steve and Grace. You know, I I kind of feel like I don't need to preach this morning. Just consider this the support act um, to the main message that you got to hear through those beautiful stories. But I am looking forward to sharing with you this morning and continuing. Continuing on with our JTB, John the Baptist, series through the life of this incredible man, this Jesus forerunner and follower. And so as we we kick off the message this morning, I want you to think back, guys, interact with us in the comments. Think back to what was perhaps your favorite romantic comedy, your rom-com of the 90s or the noughties, which is what we call the 2000s. Um, Think back to what was your favorite rom-com of that time. You'll see on screen one of my favorite rom-coms of the 2000s, which was the movie 27 Dresses. Let us know in the comments if you've seen it. Now, in this movie, you'll see the the, the key character, Jane Nichols. She uh, is within 27 weddings, wearing 27 different bridesmaid dresses, serving 27 different brides. And it's your classic rom-com, right? You've got Jane who... um, despises this one guy all throughout the movie and by the end she's fallen head over heels in love with him and in this beautiful glorious turnaround scene at the end of the movie you've got Jane in the wedding dress and all of those 27 brides that she served as bridesmaid wearing their 27 bridesmaid dresses it's glorious it's so satisfying (laughs) this moment. Um, But you know the saying, don't you? Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. It's kind of spoken as a, a bit of a lament, isn't it? Now, it's not one I subscribe to, but I'm familiar with the sentiment because you know what? We're conditioned to seek greatness, aren't we? Uh, you know, from childhood, we don't dress up as the, the sidekick. Kids dress up as the superhero. In school, you don't go out for vice captain. You're, you're running for school captain. And as we get a bit older and maybe a little bit wiser, we, we climb different kinds of ladders. We climb the social ladder. You climb the corporate ladder. But I tend to think that not often in life do we stop and pause to think, Is my ladder leaning against the right wall? And so I wonder, friends, as we consider this morning, what is your attitude toward playing the support role? Do you see following as a necessary evil on the way to taking the lead? Are you happy to serve someone else's vision or are you someone who always needs to see your ideas take front and centre? And maybe this is a little bit more subtle, this one, but I wonder how many of you deliberately and intently put yourself in situations where you're not the expert in the room, but you've got something to learn. You're the student. 
I suspect that your answers to these questions is proportionate to how you're going to feel about what is arguably, in my opinion, John the Baptist's best all-time one-liner, which is this. He must become greater, I must become less. Of course, John's talking about Jesus. And 2,000 years ago, John the Baptist, or JTB, as we've come to know him, was the original bachelor. And our, if our lament today is always the bridesmaid, never the bride, John was not lamenting that he was always the groomsman, never the groom. This could just as easily have been his catchphrase. The only difference for John was that it wasn't a lament. It was a source of great joy, as we'll get to see in just a few moments, because he understood that there's no shame in playing the supporting role. John understood what we too must learn, which is that Jesus' greatness is our greatest mission. If John's life were a movie, what we're zooming in on, the scene that we're watching this morning, is not long after the wedding that took place in Cana, where Jesus performed his very first miracle, happens to be one of my favorites. He turns water into wine. And this is the moment where Jesus is revealed to the world as the Messiah. This is the first sign that he is the anointed one the one who has long been promised to God's people and indeed to the whole world, the one who had come to bring salvation, the promised king. And here we find Jesus and John in the book of John chapter 3, both baptizing followers along the River Jordan. Perhaps not at the same point of the River Jordan, but definitely in the same region. And this is the moment where John's dwindling ministry is held up alongside Jesus' growing popularity. And so let's read together this morning in John chapter 3, verses 22 to 26. And then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time with them there, baptizing people. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water there and people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before John was thrown into prison. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people. Everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. Now the conversation might have started over the Jewish ritual of ceremonial cleansing, but where it ended up was much more basic than that. It was a popularity contest. And for John's disciples, they are indignant as they come to him and basically say to John, this river ain't big enough for the two of you. <laughs> this river ain't big enough for both Jesus and you, John. And 
you know, look, I've been to the River Jordan. Um, I've got a photo here for you of my visit to the River Jordan just a few years ago. And as I walked down the stairs and, and came alongside, you can see there a group of um, a, a church or a group of um, Jesus followers getting ready to be baptised all in their white. Um, it's, a, it's a powerful experience. But you know what? That body of water is just as contested today as it was then. And you'll see in the next photo that, you know, it's surrounded by this barbed wire fence. And in my experience, as I walked down to what was one of the possible baptismal sites for Jesus' baptism, um, I had to walk past a couple of armed guardmen to get there. So this is a, a contested body of water. It was then and it is now. This river was what you might call a demarcation line. It marked an ending and a beginning. All throughout the story of God's people, you find these significant bodies of water that when we pass through the waters, we are moving from something and to something. You can look at the story all throughout the story of God's people throughout the scriptures. First, you see them moving through the Red Sea from slavery in Egypt through to wandering in the desert wilderness for 40 years. And then you see them after those 40 years moving through the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. And then perhaps more relatable to us, you see believers today, right now, following Jesus through the baptismal waters, leaving behind their old life and moving to a new life. So it's fitting, therefore, that John's ministry and all that it represents begins to diminish just as Jesus' ministry is beginning to take off and it all culminates around the Jordan River. There's a moment, this before, this after. And so I want you to imagine with me, friends, this morning that John the Baptist had access at that moment when his disciples are confronting him about this river ain't big enough for the two of you. Imagine that John had access to a whiteboard and a marker at that moment for this teachable moment with his disciples. Because what he's about to say in response to them, he could just as easily have drawn up on a whiteboard as a Venn diagram, because he begins to outline for them all the ways in which his ministry is distinct and different from the ministry, the growing ministry of Jesus. So have a listen to this. In verse 28, John says, I am not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. John has no illusions of grandeur. John is comfortable that he is the forerunner. He is the one sent ahead. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised king. And then in verse 29, John says, It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. Again, John is more than comfortable being always the groomsman, never the groom. He's comfortable in his role as best man to Jesus the groom, to stand up next to the one who's taking the vows. 
in a moment we'll talk about who Jesus is marrying. But for now, just know that John was comfortable to be the best man. And then in verse 30, John says, he must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. This linchpin verse. In verse 31, John says, he has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth and we speak of earthly things, but he, he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. Again, John is comfortable and knows his place. He knows that we, we are just but from dust. We are from the earth. But Jesus, he has come from above. He has left behind heaven and entered into this earth that he created. But his origins are heavenly. And then... In verses 32 and 34, we hear John saying of Jesus that he testifies about what he has seen and heard. He is sent by God. He speaks God's words. So whereas John is simply a second-hand witness to the divine, he knows that Jesus speaks from first-hand experience because he is God. He is one with God. Everything that he says comes from the Father. And then in verse 34, John says, finally, God gives him, Jesus, the spirit without limit. So unlike all the prophets before him, uh, sorry, like all the prophets before him, John knows that he has limited access to the Holy Spirit. But he is saying of Jesus that he has unlimited, limitless access to the Holy Spirit because again, Jesus is one with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. So you've got this, this wonderful distinctive Venn diagram if you've got that, that um, whiteboard that John has been drawing on and is laying out there for his followers all the ways in which his ministry and his personhood is distinctive from Jesus. And right in the middle, that demarcation line of baptism where you can just imagine John's followers crossing over that line, crossing over the River Jordan to go to follow Jesus. And he's not sad about it. He's rejoicing about it. Through all of this, John makes his point abundantly clear. This is the point of no return for him. This is the beginning of the end. His job at this point is to work himself out of a job. So what was true for John today is what was true for John then is just as true, friends, for you and me today. That Jesus' greatness is our greatest mission. So like John, to expand the reach of Jesus, we too, we're going to have to embrace our limits. We're going to have to embrace the support role. And I want to talk to you just briefly about three ways in which we can embrace our limits in order to expand the reach of Jesus into the world. The first of those is this. Friends, we need to give credit where credit is due. And although I didn't plan it this way, those beautiful stories that we've heard this morning from Ibby and from Steve and from Grace are just the perfect forerunner to what I'm about to share with you. you we are the, the supporting act 
to God's greatness. Our job is to give credit where credit is due, to point to him. In verse 27, John says, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. In a world where we live amongst social media influencers and you know, to, to be an influencer is a job opportunity. It can make you money. And it's, it's no longer a world like 10, 15, 20 years ago where such a thing never existed. And it seems almost counterintuitive to give our influence away, to give our power away. You know, I wonder, is, is John asking us to sell up all our earthly possessions and go and live a life of obscurity in the desert eating locusts? I don't think so. <laughs> I think that he's saying that of all people, Christians should be the most secure. Christians should be the ones who are most comfortable with giving away influence, with giving away power. We should be the least entitled people that you'll meet. Because our identity, who we are, is rooted in the grace of God. Our identity as believers and followers of Jesus is rooted in the fact that I've done nothing. I have done zero to earn God's favour. His grace is entirely about who he is and says nothing about who I am. I love these words of C.S. Lewis, who says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So how do you go with giving credit where credit is due? You know who I think of when I think of people who embody humility? Now, they're gonna hate that I'm saying this this morning. I hope they're watching though. I think of Brian and Mary Keefe. To me, these two people embody that kind of humility. They tick all the boxes that I'm about to talk about when it comes to giving a credit where credit's due. Because if I'm giving credit where credit is due, I don't hold tightly to positions and people and possessions. And that's true as long as I've known Brian and Mary, which is about 11 years now. They arrived at Mill Park Baptist Church around the time I did. And as long as I've known them, they have been open-palmed with their life. They have been generous to a fault. They've been the kind of people who are content with what they have because they know that every good thing they have comes from above. They are the kind of people who hold loosely to people, possessions, and positions. And I just find that incredibly refreshing, don't you? If I'm giving credit where credit's due, I take every opportunity to point to Christ in my successes. And you'll find that's also true of Brian and Mary, because if you give them a compliment, you tell them they've done something well, they won't obnoxiously do this and they don't, won't do it in a forced way, but they will find a way to let you know that what you're seeing in them is actually a reflection of what Christ has done in their life. And isn't that wonderful? 
You know, it is such a refreshing thing and this should be the description of all of God's people that, that when we receive a compliment, we can find a way to point to Jesus and say, thanks for that, hey, thanks. But that is a reflection of who God is and what he has done in my life. And then if I'm giving credit where credit is due, I'm going to dare to do things that are not possible for me. I'm going to dare to do the impossible because I know that God is capable of abundantly above and beyond what I could ask or imagine and that I need God to accomplish impossible things. And so again, um, Brian and Mary have come and joined the Donnybrook church plant team and they're daring to dream about what God might do. But this is a life of of missionary work for them um, as you will no doubt have people in your mind who this describes as well. And I, I do, I wonder who comes to your mind when you think of people who give credit where credit is due. Another way that we can embrace our limits to expand the reach of Jesus is by embracing the ordinary. And in this way, Jesus and John the Baptist couldn't be more different. You've got John who's at home in the wilderness eating locusts. And then you've got Jesus who is at home amongst the people. John is in the wilderness living a simple and almost monastic life set apart from earthly concerns. But Jesus, he is at home among the everyday ordinariness of people's lives. Public perception was that, excuse me, public perception was that John didn't spend his time eating and drinking. But Jesus, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, so much so that he was considered uh, by some to be a glutton and a a drunk. (laughs) So much feasting was going on for Jesus. And, you know, my observation is that many Christians have this belief that to be a Jesus follower means to live above earthly concerns. And now you might not go so far as to sell all your earthly possessions and, and to go and live in a monastery or a nunnery, but still it's this subtle divide that we make between what we might call the sec- sacred and the secular. The church history has a lot of light to shed on why that is, and I won't go into that this morning for the sake of time. But I've found that over the last 18 months of COVID lockdown, that gap between the sacred and the secular has begun to just close over time. And it's beautiful to watch it happening as we begin to relocate our faith back into the ordinariness of our lives, back into our homes, our families, back into the neighbourhood. It's beautiful to watch. In heaven all around us, Simon Holt shares his frustration about what he calls this desert-obsessed spirituality. And he asks this question, is there childcare in the desert? The answer is obvious. The simple fact is desert spirituality requires a set of life circumstances foreign to the vast majority of ordinary Christians and not just those with children. While we may be disciplined in our daily prayers and Bible reading, routine in our church attendance, even committed to periodic practices of meditation and retreat, 
The lion's share of our lives is taken up with other things. The desert is not our home. Our lives are consumed with being sensitive partners and devoted parents, good neighbours and reliable friends, engaged workers and just employers, active citizens and carers for the environment. Because of this, we need models of spirituality that lead us to embrace these elements of our lives, not minimise them. We need daily practices of spirituality that press into the stuff of everyday life with intention and purpose, not require that we walk away from it. We need a different way. Enter Jesus. Enter Jesus into the ordinariness of our lives, the washing the dishes life, the the walking around your five to 15 kilometre radius life. This is not fasting in the desert for Jesus, but this is feasting at the wedding in Cana. And I'm convinced that when John said, he must become greater, I must become less, he's also talking about a whole new way of life being ushered in, that the old way of desert spirituality must pass away, and the new way of life of discovering Jesus in front of us in our ordinary and everyday life must increase. If you'd like to explore those kind of ideas more, I can't more highly recommend to you this book that I read in the last lockdown called The Liturgy of the Ordinary. And I'm going to do a Pastor Jeff here and say, look, after lockdown, if you'll read this book and be prepared to discuss it with me, I would love to shout you lunch. So hold me to it. I I just can't recommend this book enough. But John is inviting us to discover a new way of following Jesus into the ordinariness of our lives. You know what that looks like for me? At the most basic level, it means being open to the ways in which God is present in my everyday Now, during this series, you've heard Pastor Jeff talking about his spiritual practices, the things that he commits to doing every day in order to grow in his spiritual health and broader health. And I want to share with you one of my own spiritual practices this morning. Um, Perhaps you might call it a rule of life. I've made the commitment to myself and to God that whenever I'm out walking, if I encounter my neighbour, I'm always going to stop and greet that neighbour, say hello, and if possible, have a conversation. And I can tell you, just through this simple commitment, this simple spiritual practice of being a good neighbour, Over the last two years that I've lived in my home, I've seen a transformation. I've seen um, uh, the the son, the three-year-old autistic son of my next-door neighbours, who's non-verbal. Over those two years, I've seen him uh, now get to the point where he will wave hello, which is a huge thing. And when I invited them into my home last Christmas to watch our Christmas service, they were willing to accept that invitation because of relationship that we had built out in, on the driveway, saying hello, stopping for conversation. And he was able to come, their three-year-old autistic son, who's not comfortable in a whole lot of places, but was comfortable to step over the, through the front door of my home because of that simple spiritual practice of being a good neighbour and noticing where God is already at work. 
Embrace the ordinary, friends. God is present in your neighbourhood and at work in your street. A third way that you can embrace your limits to expand the reach of Jesus is to choose the one who first chose you. The only hope of a decreasing self is an increasing Christ. Because who amongst us, when we're completely honest with ourselves, is not completely self-obsessed, right? (laughs) It's written into our DNA ever since Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit from the forbidden tree. We only need to look to the supermarket shelves and our acts of self-preservation every time a new lockdown is announced here in Melbourne and the missing toilet paper rolls to see our obsession with self. We serve a long litany of the self. Our actions betray us. We are self-focused by nature. Just listen to this long litany of the self. There's self-preservation, self-help, self-care, self-actualized, self-made, self-motivated, self-esteem. We serve ourselves. But John the Baptist, JTB, he invites us to a whole new way of life. He who is always the groomsman, never the groom, steps aside happily as best man and invites us into a marriage to the one who first chose us, the one who's waiting for us at the end of that aisle with Jesus. And of Jesus, John says this in verses 35 and 36. The father loves his son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. And for those of you who are married, I want you just to remember back to that moment of your wedding vows. If you're not married, think back to the last wedding that you attended and try and remember that moment of the I do's and the wedding vows in order for a wedding to be completely legitimate, for it to be indeed a wedding, those vows have to cover off four key aspects, and those are these. First, those vows need to be mutual. You take one another. Second, those vows are exclusive. It is forsaking all others. Third, they are unconditional, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. And four, they are lifelong. And with our marriage to Jesus, our lifelong commitment to Jesus, these vows are exactly the same except for one key way. They are not lifelong They are eternal. (laughs) Jesus commits to us and promises us eternal life, not lifelong. In the movie 27 Dresses, Jane's favourite part of the wedding is that moment where she looks at the groom's face while his bride is walking down the aisle. And there's simply no comparison, friends, when you look into the face of the Messiah, the Christ Jesus, and imagine his expression as we commit to him, to take him in mutual covenant, to forsake all other gods, to unconditionally give ourselves to him for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And when we get through all of that, 
that choice to believe, he turns to us and he commits all of those things in return and he says, not until death do us part, but forever and ever and ever. How incredible is that? So I want to ask you this morning, have you chosen the one who will first choose you? Are you continuing to choose him if you've already made that decision like we've heard um, from others already this morning? If this is something that you'd love to explore with one of us, any of our pastors would love to have a conversation with you. All you need to do is have a look in the comments and click on that uh, link that says connect and let us know that you'd love to explore that decision with us. And we'd love to pray with you, answer your questions as best we can. We would love to do that. Jesus' greatness is our greatest mission. He must increase, but I must decrease. So I want to take just a moment right now as we wrap up. Right now in the presence of God, just to think through, how are you going with embracing your limits in order to see the reach of Jesus expand into the world? We've talked this morning about three ways that we can embrace our limits to see the reach of Jesus expand. We've talked about giving credit where credit is due, embracing the ordinary, choosing the one who first chose you. So before we pray right now, I want to ask you two questions. What do you need to let go of? to allow Jesus to grow in your life. Maybe for you that is letting go of people or a person in your life who perhaps during lockdown, perhaps during this time, you have found that you've been holding on to particular relationships more, more than you should. Or perhaps it's position, positional power, maybe a ministry position or a role in your family or in your workplace that you've been holding on to just a little bit too tightly during this time. Or maybe it's possessions, financial security. Whatever it is, what do you need to let go of in order to allow Jesus to grow in your life? My second question is this, what do you need to hold on to? to make Jesus' greatness your mission. When you imagine Jesus, the groom, standing at the end of that aisle and you look into that face, what is it that you see in his expression? What is it that you need to hold on to in who he embodies? Is it his grace? Is it his love? Is it his patience? Is it his provision like those stories we've heard this morning? What is it that you need to lay hold of to embrace and make Jesus' greatness your mission? Let's pray. Loving God, we, we thank you that you have been present with us this morning. We thank you, Lord, that when we look into your face, everything pales in comparison. Thank you, God, that you meet us right here right now. Father, as we consider those two questions, what you would have us let go of and what we can hold on to, Lord, speak to us right now by your Holy Spirit. 
Lord, I believe that you desire for us to move freely through this life, to be able to see you present in the ordinariness that's right before us. But in order to do that, God, we need to choose you. We need to choose the one who first chose us. Thank you for choosing us, God. Thank you for sending your son to enter into this world, letting go of all heavenly privileges to be amongst us and to make you known to us. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that this same man, 100% man, 100% God, gave his life upon the cross, stepped into our weakness and sinful lives and paid the price. We thank you for that, God. Help us this morning once again, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, to again lay hold of the one who first chose us. Lord, we know that your greatness is our greatest mission. Help us to live that out as we go into the world, into our streets, into our neighbourhood, into our families, wherever we are. Help us to make you known. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray all of this in your precious name. Amen.